want to say Happy New Year to all of you and tell you that it's a joy to be uh, with you and particularly to be able to preach to you. I haven't been able to do that much in the last month. Um, and uh, it has been, I trust for you as for me and for my family, a happy Christmas time and a happy New Year. If you didn't have a happy one, uh, I trust that you will have learned something about how to make it happy next year. <laughs> um, that's kind of a joke. Um, sometimes the holiday seasons can't be happy because of the loss or the absence of a loved one. And what I really do trust is that today, those of you who have had hard holiday seasons will uh, make a point of going to your small group luncheons and being ministered to by uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ who will be faithful in loving you and in encouraging you and strengthening you in this new year. I also want to thank all of you for giving faithfully. Uh, when I looked at the end of the year figures, I was very, very pleased. And um, the elders and the pastors were were more pleased by those of you who gave $10 than those of you that gave $10,000. Um, because this church is, in God, this church is uh, given the strength to give faithfully. And Jesus made it very clear that the widow who gave out of what she didn't have gave more than the rich people. And so all of the gifts of this church contributed to having us end the year in the black. And I thank you for that. Um, last year at this time, David and I had taken our year's pensions and put it into the offering, and we still didn't end the year in the black. And that was a great disappointment to us. And so this year, to see that David and I didn't put our pensions in the offering, and we did end the year in the black, this is good progress. And if you're wondering what's going to happen when we bring our budget to you, David and the budget committee have worked very hard, and the budget... I don't think, David, tell me, what is it compared to last year? Where are you? He's not here. Okay. Yes, unofficially. Did you all hear that? We're proposing a budget 500 less than last year unless the elders make a change to it before it comes to you. And so um, I want you to know we're working hard to be faithful to you in how we spend the money of the church. So if that's an encouragement to you, be encouraged. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. You won't be surprised to know we're back in Galatians. You also won't be surprised to know that we're not going to make much progress this morning. Um, We have been out of it for quite some time. You will be happy to know that we are in the fifth chapter and that we are now in the second half of the fifth chapter. So some progress is being made. Um, this week, we're going to pick up with the theme that we spent a number of weeks on at the end of last year, actually more in November than December, which is the theme of the commands of God for those who are in Christ. And uh, a little more about that in a moment. First, let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. 
but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you know about the book of Galatians that uh, it was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. Uh, Galatians are residents of Galatia, and that's how it gets its name. And Paul wrote this church to warn its members against turning away from faith in Christ alone to faith in Christ and faith in their obedience to the law. In the absence of their faithful shepherd, Paul, other false shepherds had come into the church and were seeking to convince these Galatian believers that their faith in Jesus Christ was not sufficient, that they needed something else. Now, that something else was obedience of the law, but the particular law that they were fixated on was the law of circumcision. You know, in the Old Testament that God called Abraham, and one of the first things he called him to do was to circumcise his children, the covenant children. Now, in the book of Romans, it makes it very clear that it wasn't circumcision that saved them, but rather it was faith, that God worked through faith to save Abraham, and that Abraham had faith before he circumcised his children. But we are a people that like to depend upon things that we can do ourselves, things that we can see, things that we can touch and taste and feel. And so the Jews, the false shepherds, came into this church and what they saw were people who were trusting in the work of Christ. And this made them uncomfortable. Now, why were they uncomfortable? Um, There's a big argument, and it's been for a number of years. It's maybe more intense now than it's been in the past. And the argument is whether the real issue in the church in Galatia was an ethnic or a racial issue, whether the real issue was a legalism issue. Some people say that what was really going on, what was at the center of the conflict, was the fact that the Jews, as a people, having seen themselves as uh, being slaves to no man, as they said to Jesus when, when they were engaging him, seeing themselves as uh, the people of God, as the people of the book, as the people set apart, as the people who had received the law, um, that they were superior to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles, yes, maybe they could come into the church and be saved now, but they needed to make it clear as they came that uh, that they were beholden to the, Gen- to the Jews and that really they needed to take a step to become Jews, not completely Jews, because after all, only Jews are Jews, but proselytized Jews, Jews that were circumcised. And so what you have is an initiation rite or uh, a hazing ritual. Now, I know that probably nobody said that... <laughs> You know, the circumcision battle is a hazing ritual, but, you know, we live in a university community. You all know what fraternities and sororities are, right? So look at the Jews coming into this church filled with Gentiles who say that they believe in Christ and who are saved, who come to the table in unity with the Jews. And all of a sudden, what has to happen is they need to be circumcised in order to come to the table, in order to be confident of their salvation. Now, is it in fact a racial and ethnic issue, a hazing ritual? 
uh, or is it a legalism issue? Is it that we're always frustrated and not completely comfortable with walking into the presence of a holy God with nothing in our hands? We always want to bring something. Um, when the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, church in this city, uh, went out of business, you don't want to call a church a business, but I don't know how else to put it, when it folded, when it stopped, when it ceased, um, a number of people had to make decisions about where they were going to, be going to church. And one of the men who had been the pastors of that church said to me that he believed the reason some of the people made the decision to go into a sacramental church instead of staying in Reformed churches was that they were concerned about their children, that they didn't know if their children uh, were had faith and they were concerned that their children uh, be safe spiritually. And so they went into a sacramental uh, union, a sacramental church, a sacramental confession, so that they could have their children uh, baptized in a context where that indicated that their children were saved. Now, if you think about uh, the Roman Catholic Church, you think about a number of other Protestant churches. Um, on the way over here, I was listening to a sermon of a local church where the pastor talked about a person at the beginning of the service having been baptized in Christ and therefore having been saved at the beginning of the service. There's something very enticing about that to us because if we can simply come forward and be baptized and be saved, if our children can come forward and be baptized and be saved, then we're not as naked as we stand before God. And more to the point, our children aren't as naked as they stand before God. It's no longer the piercing question of whether we have faith in Jesus Christ and the test of that faith, namely their fruit. But it is pointing back to the baptism and saying, well, yes, they're no longer following God, but they were baptized. Now, you might not be that crass as to say that, but you understand what I'm saying, that baptism does serve... Uh, for many people as a means of having confidence about the souls of their children. Now, lest we feel ourselves superior to sacramentalists, people who place their faith in baptism, let's acknowledge ourselves that we do the same thing with prayers to receive Jesus, the sinner's prayer. It's the sacrament of evangelicals. And so we point to the fact that, as I've often said, uh, Johnny may be a devil in hell in California doing drugs, sleeping around, uh, living a completely crusty and God-forsaken life. And he may be 45 years old. He may be 65 years old. He may have raised his children not to know God. One of the most impious things a man can do. But his mother can point back to the fact that when he was seven years old, he prayed the sinner's prayer in vacation Bible school. You understand what I'm saying? And so in the sacramental unions and in the evangelical communions, both of them, we have this tendency, which is to point to a physical act, something that our lips say, something that the pastor does with water, and say, well, Johnny's saved. All right. And so this is legalism. This is where you have uh, the... the uh, 
the moment of truth standing before a holy God and you feel naked and you say, but I was baptized, but, but, I, but my son prayed the sinner's prayer. And in this case, in the church in Galatia, you have the Jews saying to the Gentiles, you better not come to God with Christ alone and his righteousness. But you better come having circumcised yourself. And it may not be that they were feeling superior as Jews. It may be that they themselves did not have saving faith, but had a, a sort of combination of faith in Christ and faith in their own good works. And they were very sincerely telling the, Jew, the Gentiles that they better have that same combination of faith in Christ and faith in their own good works. On the one hand, a hazing ritual a means of asserting the superiority of Jews over Gentiles. On the other hand, an external act that you can do that gives you confidence as you stand before a holy God. Yeah, you, you have confidence in Jesus, and Jesus did a lot, and you, and you have faith in Jesus, but, but, but it can't be enough. You must come with something in your hands. Now, are these two mutually exclusive? No. What I think is the reason the two sides are arguing is because they're both true. I mean, I can't conceive of, of Jews coming to Gentiles, telling them to do anything without them feeling superior to the Gentiles. Right? Right? I mean, isn't that, after all, why every white feels superior when he goes to Africa? And this, isn't this why Africans always treat whites as superiors in Africa? And when has there ever been a time when racial and ethnic groups and skin colors don't look down their noses at each other? And so, to me, it's incomprehensible that these people who practically spit on and began to plot the death of Jesus when he said to them that their father wasn't Abraham but the devil went into the church in Galatia and all of a sudden were humble and had no motivation whatsoever to have these poor people circumcised in order to show their inferiority to the Jewish race. I mean, you know, that's beyond credulity. I mean, I, I, I personally can't believe that the Jews coming into the church in Galatia were not establishing their superiority, but I don't think that was all it. I think it was also this issue of our absolute refusal to come naked into the presence of a holy God. Now you say naked, and I say, all right, naked of our own works, not naked absolutely because the act of faith is to walk in the righteousness of Christ, dressed in his robes of righteousness. But I'll tell you, it's hard. It's hard to do. Now, if it was hard for the Gentiles to do, and it was hard for the Jews to do, it's even harder for an American to do. Because you talk about the American psyche, especially the male American psyche. And from the moment we've been born until today, we have had pushed on us what? Self-reliance. It's the theme of every movie. Why do you watch Bruce Willis movies, eh? Is Bruce Willis a sort of like, um, you know, get in touch with his buddies guy? <laughs> Is that what you watched? You know, Bruce Willis like hanging out? You know, and, and like sitting around a coffee table and drinking coffee with his buddies, you know, and finding out that they fear the same things he fears. <laughs> Come on, laugh. I know you watch Bruce Willis movies. You know, Bruce Willis and Clint Eastwood and, and John Wayne, and I could go on and on and on. About the closest you'll get to a buddy movie, right, is like 
Paul Newman and Robert Redford as they jump over the cliff. And even that is really about self-reliance, you know. (laughs) Who are those guys? And so you think about how difficult it is for the Jews and for the Gentiles in the church of Galatia to be humble. And it's much harder for Americans. It's much harder for us to walk into the presence of a holy God with nothing in our hands. It's very, very, very hard. And I'm against anyone who looks to baptism to save them. I think it's one of the most destructive doctrines that the church has ever taught. But I'm equally against those who point to sinners' prayers and to asking Jesus into their heart and take comfort in that and think that saves them or that saves their children. There's one thing that saves us, and that is faith in the work, the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's it. And it's not our faith that saves us, but it's God's grace that saves us, and he uses our faith. So if you look to somebody, well, just try to have faith. Well, even that's not going to work. Because it is God working through our faith, but working through his Son who accomplishes our redemption. So here's this church in Galatia, and it is right at the cusp, right at the edge, of taking the step from simple faith in Jesus Christ into faith in Jesus Christ and something else. Now, the placeholder for something else is circumcision. But it could be anything. It could be baptism. It could be the sinner's prayer. It could be anything. Anything that we have to do to add to the work of Christ so that we can have confidence in both Jesus Christ and something else. And Paul is livid. And this, if there is ever a document that could be referred to as uh, a screed, (laughs) it's the book of Galatians. It's not really a very dignified book at all. And, And normally, firemen aren't dignified when someone's dying in a burning building. Okay? Generally, and Kierkegaard says this generally, you know, uh, it's all very nice when people show up with their thimbles and little milk pails to put water in them and, 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 and try to put the fire out. But when the fireman shows up, he says, basically, I won't quote him directly because it would scandalize you, but he says, basically, get rid of all the thimbles and all the milk pails and, and all the five-gallon buckets Get out of my way. I have work to do. And that's what Paul's doing with the book of Galatians. You know, he's clearing the decks and he's doing his work. He'll bring in every rhetorical device he can think of. He will bring in every level of emotional and intellectual intensity he can. Why? Because the people of God are being led from salvation into damnation. You say, oh, but the people of God can't be damned once they're the people of God. Well, okay, then go to the book of Galatians and you explain to me what's going on there where he says what? Well, look in your Bibles. What does he say? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. 
earlier in the chapter that we read today. He says this. He says it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. So he's speaking to people who are believers. He's speaking to people in the church. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. How could Christ be no benefit to a Christian? And then he says this in verse 3, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So listen to this. Christ is of no benefit to you. You've been severed from Christ and you've fallen from grace. Now, I've said this again and again. Whatever your doctrinal position is on the issue of eternal security, if it causes you to not hear and tremble at these words, I don't give a plug nickel for your doctrine. You look at me and you say, but don't you believe in the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints? Yes, I do. You say, but then why are you reading this to you? And my answer is because it's in the Bible. (laughs) You know, it's an uncomfortable and inconvenient thing about Scripture. It says things that we wouldn't have come up with. And that's why I love it. I would never have thought to say to my wife, honey, you need to submit to me because Adam was created first and then Eve. I mean, that's something in my wildest dreams I would never have come up with. But there it is in Scripture. Now, I bring that one up. And I bring it up again and again because that's one of the principal truths of Scripture that's attacked today. It's not because I have a thing about submission. It's because I have a thing about Satan's attack on Scripture. And so I try to focus exactly where Satan is focusing because that's the gap in the wall and that's where I want to make sure that we're rebuilding. All right. Now, coming back to this, you may not want this to be in Scripture, but it is. The Apostle Paul is saying that at stake in this issue of circumcision is the destiny of souls. Okay? Again, I believe in eternal security. You say, well then how do you, you know, how do you, um, what's the word? It begins with a C. Um, Yeah, reconcile. Let's do that one. That's a good one. That works. From a math man. That's humiliating. For me to take a word from a math man. It is never humiliating for me to take anything from Eric Wilson. And I'm grieving and have been grieving for six months his departure. I love him. Anyhow, how do I reconcile it? Well... I reconcile it according to Scripture, which is here at this place, I give you the warning that Scripture gives you, which is that if we move away from trust, simple trust only, in the completed work of Christ, and to trust in that work and in our own work, we have moved from salvation into Christ being of no benefit to us, us being under the obligation to keep the whole law, us being severed from Christ, and us falling from grace. Okay. Now, this is what Scripture says. So, Paul is very intense. And at the beginning of our section, Paul says this. 
he says that we as believers, um, and now I, ever since I've gone to printing on both sides of the page, I've started getting lost. Somebody told me a couple weeks ago it was endearing, so I hope you all see it that way. Okay, here we are. (laughs) But now I'm completely confused. Just a second. All right. Maybe I'd better stop printing on both sides of the page. All right, here we are. I'm back. At the beginning of our text, he says this, For you were called to freedom. So the Apostle Paul has been teaching them, warning them, uh, doing everything he can to move them away from circumcision and back to having their faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, for you were called to freedom, brethren. And I want to spend the rest of our time on this little phrase called to freedom. Because I think that, uh, you know, I grew up in a home where the sovereignty of God was a precious doctrine. Um, And so generally, I take for granted that those of you who are in this church, love the things I love. But I know it's not true. I know some of you do not love this doctrine. Some of you don't believe it. Some of you resist it. Some of you are opposed to it. Some of you think that you are being faithful to Scripture and opposing this doctrine of the call of God. And so I want to spend a few minutes on the call of God. I want you to have to think about it because it should be a precious doctrine to you. Now, what does it mean when it speaks of the call of God? Well, what it means is that uh, those to whom Paul was writing um, were not believers because they themselves had taken the initiative. They themselves had come up with a plan to free themselves from the yoke of slavery to sin but rather because God himself has set his affection on them. In Romans 1, verse 6, it says to the believers, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 8, one of the most precious verses of all of Scripture, uh, particularly a comfort in times of tragedy, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And even the most rabid Arminian will, will use that verse as a comfort in times of great tragedy. And yet I think it's ironic because it goes on to say this, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And an Arminian would say, yes, I love God. He loves God. And then it says to those who are called according to his purpose. And I don't have any sympathy for people who try to denigrate and downplay the call of God. Now, often they think they're doing good things. They think that they're uh, removing God from any accusation of being the author of evil. You know, if we, if, we, if we lift up the choice of man, then the threat to God of him being responsible for those who aren't saved is minimized. Uh, if we lift up the will of man, uh, then nobody can make God the author of evil. Nobody can say that God's the one that's responsible for someone going to hell. That person has made a choice not to believe in Christ, and that's why he's going to hell. That person made a choice not to place his faith in the cross of Christ. But listen to the text. It says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
God causes everything to work together for good. A precious promise, right? But it's not for everyone. It's only for those, what? It says, who love God, and then it opens up the love of God, and it says, those who love God are those who are called according to His purpose. Not our purpose, but His purpose. Now, there's no final conflict between the choice of man and the choice of God. It's a false opposition. It's a false conflict. It just simply isn't there. Again, Scripture says it. Because then it goes on. Now, remind you, let me remind you, you know, this is the precious promise. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And then I say to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But do you know what comes next? We always memorize these little promises in in tiny, tiny little forms. And what comes next is, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And people, here I'm a human being, okay, I'm just Tim, which is what I am all the time. (laughs) I don't get it. How can you people who don't believe in God's sovereignty, now you'd say, well, we believe in God's sovereignty, but just not that he controls things. How could you come come up with a more explicit, direct statement of God's control of things than this? I don't get it. So, help me. Show me your logic. How do you get around this text? If you want to be comforted by God working all things together for good, why don't you take a comfort in the fact that the reason it will work together for good is that you are called, and the reason you're called is that It was his purpose. And because he's called you and because it's his purpose, what's going to happen? Well, he foreknew you. He predestined you. You will be conformed to the image of son. You will be be a brother to the firstborn, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be justified and you will be glorified. Is that bad? I don't think it's bad. I think it's good for us to maximize our reliance upon God. Now you say, well, yeah, I do too. I think it's good for us not to have circumcision as well as faith in Christ. Well, that's maximizing your reliance on God. But isn't it also good to maximize your reliance on God when you look at his agency and your salvation? Nobody's telling you you don't choose. The Bible itself says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Nobody's telling you that you don't have a will. The Westminster Confession talks about us having God work through us and lead us to faith without violating our will. Nobody's telling you that you don't have a choice, you don't have a will, that you don't have to believe, that you don't have to place your faith in Christ, that you don't have to repent. Nobody's telling you not to get baptized. Nobody's telling you not to put on holiness. Nobody's telling you not to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. All we're saying is that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. (laughs) Now, this is how Scripture speaks of it. So if I promise that I will not stop saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for heaven's sakes. Would you please not stop saying, for it is God who works in you, to will and to work according to his good pleasure? You know, isn't this a deal we can make? (laughs) I mean, think about it. 
if I won't minimize the choice of man and the will of man, would you please not minimize the sovereignty of God? I mean, isn't this somewhere we can agree? You know, I'm not demanding you to deny that man has a will. Would you please not demand that I never say predestination or election or sovereignty or providence? And I think that's a place that we can meet. I don't know. I'll talk to you after the service. We'll see. Those who are called of Jesus Christ according to his purpose. And we look at this text, and this text says you were called to freedom. And this freedom is a true freedom. Now, if you think about it, the world would say that the man who is free is the man who has a lot of money and lives in California and has gotten rid of his first wife and has his wife have custody of the children. And that's the man that's free. But humanly speaking, I ask you this. uh, Who's freer? The man who lives with his first wife, with their children, and has their vomit on his shoulder... Or the man who drives uh, the Lamborghini Diablo and is a clean machine and sends his child support to his wife. Who is free? The world says the man with the Lamborghini. But who is free? This is where the book of Galatians ends. And what it's going to hit again and again and again is the fact that those of us who are in Christ's righteousness, who refuse to be circumcised or to do anything that adds to the righteousness of Christ, who refuse to play our confidence in anything other than the righteousness of Christ, and who, because God has chosen us, has called us, has predestined us, has elected us, has in his sovereign will filled us with faith, uh, we then turn, and as we have been loved by God, we will love others. And as we love others... We are free, they are free, the church is free, and when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we will be free indeed. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that all those who are not in Christ are slaves to Satan, and there is no hope for them in this life or the next. But those who are in Christ in this life will have tribulations, but will be free, because the Son of Man has made us free, and in eternity will live to praise God. So what do you believe about freedom? Who do you think is free? Do you chafe under your wife and children? Do you chafe under the thought that your mother made you come to church this morning? Do you chafe under the duty that you have to have family devotions after dinner each night so that you look as if you're a Christian? Do you chafe under the disciplines you put on your computer so that you will not look at pornography? Do you chafe under having to be associated with those Christians who uh, say that God created the world and that it didn't just evolve purposely without an intelligent designer? Do you chafe at having to be associated with ignoramuses? Who's really free? Stephen Jay Gould? Was he free? Hmm? Was he free? Hugh Hefner, is he free? J-Lo, is she free? 
Huh? Is she free? How about Elton John? Sir, Sir Elton John. Is he free? How about Mother Teresa? Was she free? We don't know. She had a lot of appearances of freedom. I'm out of time and we rent this space. But at the beginning of this new year, I really do want you people to think about this issue of the call of God to freedom. Maybe you made New Year's resolutions, maybe you didn't. But we're going to go into a discussion of what it is to be free. And we're not free if we spend our lives, our years, our weeks, our days, our months, being in bondage to Satan and refusing to rely upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We're not free. And your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, your loved ones, your husband, wife, your children, none of them are free if they are not in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And one of the things I'd ask you at the beginning of this year is to really meditate on this, on the bondage that the people you love are in because they don't know Christ. I think we as a church are uh, way uh, way too protective of our own pride and our own dignity um, to speak the gospel to those who are lost. And I trust that this next year, this is something we're going to work on and we're going to repent of. And in order to do that, you really have to see the condition of those who are not in Christ. If you could come forward as elders, please. And to see that outside of Christ, there is no freedom. Um, So meditate on that. Meditate on the call of God. Meditate on the sovereignty of God. Bring your thinking and your faith in conformity to the word of God. We, as a church, as I said, do believe that God calls us to action. To choose him, to place our faith in him, to be baptized, to confess him before men, to grow in holiness. And we also do believe that he has called us to gather around a community table. I know many of you are frustrated that... uh, (laughs) We can't ever have a communion meal that is uh, something other than just a representation of a drink and a representation of bread. Um, But you do have the opportunity of immediately following this service, going to a lunch. And I'm happy to have you in my home. Any of you guys happy? Raise your hand. Okay, so like all these guys other than Gene are happy to have you. And... (laughs) And Gene would be also, except his wife said no, so. (laughs) She didn't. That's a joke. Um, (laughs) Anyhow, we hope that you will join us for lunch so that your uh, unity and union with the church is not just this formal thing, but that it goes into real organic life. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11, the words of institution that are the basis for us celebrating this meal together. They're written by the Apostle Paul, and he tells us that he received them from the Lord. He says, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed,
took bread, and when he had given thanks,